He was an American flautist living in London, studying at the Royal Academy of Music. At only 20 years of age, he was intelligent, gifted, talented, a prodigy. On the evening of June 24, 2009, he performed at the Academy in London Soundscapes, featuring the music of composers such as Joseph Hayden, George Frederick Handel, and Felix Mendelssohn. But his flute wasn't the only thing he brought with him the evening of his performance. He had with him a relatively large piece of luggage, a rolling suitcase that contained in it the accoutrements of a thief, gloves, a small flashlight, a pair of wire cutters, a glass cutting saw with a diamond blade. After the concert, he retrieved the suitcase from his locker and put his plan into motion, making his way towards the Natural History Museum in the town of Tring. This wasn't the first time he'd been there, but it would certainly be his last. After months of reconnaissance, investigating, casing, scouting, scrutinizing, studying, evaluating, analyzing, and planning, he was confident that he would be able to make his way around the walls, the barbed wire, the cameras, and the guards in order to get what he was there to pilfer a collection of coveted relics of the past, many of which no longer exist anywhere in the world, unique, rare, endangered, extinct, priceless, and irreplaceable, all for a hobby that grew into an obsession and a golden flute. In this latest series, I'll be taking you across the pond to England for one of the most baffling crimes ever carried out. This is California Dreaming, and you are listening to the tale of the Great Feather Heist. Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. This is an independent one-woman production, and there are a number of ways that you can support the podcast. You can leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to the show on preferably five stars if you truly enjoy listening. It pushes us up the charts and helps new listeners discover us. You can recommend the show in True Crime Podcast fan groups. You can like our Facebook page, leave a rating for the show there too. Join our discussion group and follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. And if you would like to go above and beyond, you can support us on Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you will not only be helping us keep the lights on, you will also gain access to dozens of exclusive full-length episodes and multi-part series cases as well. Some of the more notable stories we have covered include Jonestown, Rebecca Schaefer, Linda Sobeck, Rodney Alcala, Robert Durst, Daniel Wozniak, Irina Yarmolenko, Brenda Spencer, Lyle Stevick, Michelle Carter and Tyler Presbichin, Bud Dwyer, Janelle Potter, the Chowchilla Bus Kidnapping, James Bird, the Billionaire Boys Club, Ray Rivera, and an eight-part series on the mysterious death of Morgan Ingram, and that is just to name a few. If a subscription is not your thing, then you can make a one-time contribution through PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. This week, I'd like to thank Steve H., Mindy E., 
Amy K, Lisa T, Bonnie L, Logan M, Sam G, Anna Louise, Jeff S, and Sean D for either helping out through Patreon or PayPal. And that's all for business and miscellaneous stuff. Most of this episode is based on the research and investigation into this crime conducted by Kirk Johnson, the founder of a nonprofit called The List Project, which is an organization that assists refugees from Iraq who had at some point provided assistance to the United States during the Iraqi war, who were having difficulty getting out of the country while their lives were being threatened, and they had to stay in hiding because of the help that they had provided to the U.S. government. Kirk Johnson wrote a book about this case that we are covering today entitled The Feather Thief, Beauty, Obsession, and the Natural History Heist of the Century. I'm going to start off by telling you a little bit more about the author that I just mentioned, Kirk Johnson. He was born in Chicago, Illinois. His dad, Thomas Johnson, was a Republican state representative and senator, and his mom, Virginia Johnson, was a policy advisor to the Illinois Attorney General. After Kirk graduated from the University of Chicago in 2002, having earned a degree in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations, he went to work for the government during the Iraq War, serving as the U.S. Agency for International Development Regional Coordinator for Reconstruction in Fallujah, Iraq. When he came back to the United States, several of his Iraqi colleagues reached out to him for help. Their lives and the lives of their families were in danger because of their affiliation with the United States, and they needed help getting out. After he wrote an op-ed in late 2006 in the Los Angeles Times calling out the United States for failing to help their Iraqi allies, thousands of refugees submitted their petitions. And this compelled him to form the List Project, which has to date assisted about 2,000 Iraqi citizens who were allies to resettle in the United States. Kirk has testified before Congress. His work has been featured on several TV news shows, including 60 Minutes and The Today Show. And he has written a memoir about this experience entitled To Be a Friend is Fatal, The Fight to Save the Iraqis America Left Behind. Now, obviously, this topic can turn pretty political, especially if we consider that after former President Trump was elected into office, seven days after he was inaugurated on January 20th, 2017, his original travel ban executive order was signed, effectively placing very stringent restrictions on travel to the United States of citizens from Iran, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen. And of course, this caused problems for Kirk's efforts in getting refugees resettled in the United States. The ban was amended several times and eventually Iraq was removed, but the countries that were added or remained affected were Eritrea, Iran, Kyrgyzstan, Libya, Myanmar, Nigeria, North Korea, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, Tanzania, Venezuela, and Yemen. But it is not going to turn political because when it comes to Kirk Johnson, we are not going to discuss his time in Iraq or his nonprofit, though it is important to mention and to know that about him, where he came from, and that this work of his is precisely what brought him 
to a New Mexico fishing trip where he needed to decompress and unwind from his day job. That's what we are going to focus on, the fishing trip that sent Kirk on a years-long odyssey, sending him off into a completely different underworld of high-stakes heists and international smuggling, a clandestine cult-like world few really know all that much about. Kirk even authored a book about this findings, I mentioned it a moment ago, which will be referenced periodically throughout this episode and cited in the show notes. And dreamers, I want you to know that I know that this story is going to start off feeling a little bit meandering and way off into topics all over the place, but I also want you to trust me when I say that it will all eventually make sense in the end. So hopefully I'll be able to keep you all on track along here with me because, you know, I get off topic like nobody's business, but I can't help it. But this time there's a reason. Probably. Okay. Before we carry on, it is important for us to have an understanding of the genesis of it all. And we can trace the background of this case to a man named Alfred Russell Wallace. Some of you may have heard of him. Some of you, his name doesn't ring a bell. If I were to mention Charles Darwin, that's a name you probably would be more familiar with. Wallace and Darwin were colleagues, essentially. Darwin being about 14 years older than Wallace. When we think of Darwin, we associate him with the theories of evolution and natural selection. However, Alfred Wallace is considered to have been the one to have co-discovered natural selection along with Darwin. In fact, when Wallace sent Darwin his work on natural selection, he realized that they were on the same track. So Darwin and Wallace co-published their theory on natural selection together in 1858. So this is a vacation series episode. It's in the UK, so I'm going to do my best when it comes to the pronunciations of all the cities and towns. Alfred Wallace was born on January 8th, 1823 in Lambadoc, Monmouthshire, Wales. Incidentally, Charles Darwin was born 90 miles or 144 kilometers north of there in Shrewsbury, England though it would be many years before they would become acquainted with one another when they both, by chance, came up with the same exact theory on natural selection. I didn't get the impression that Wallace's family was particularly poor, despite the fact that he was one of a total of nine children, though four out of his five older sisters did not live past the age of 22. But after some investment missteps, as well as falling victim to fraud, Wallace's parents hit some financial hard times, so finishing up school for Wallace, much less ever going to university, was pretty much out of the question. So by the time he was a teenager, he and his older brother were sent to London, where another older brother lived, to work as an apprentice for a surveyor. The measuring and determining property lines and collecting data related to the land's shape and contour for projects such as map making and construction and whatnot. Surveyor jobs at the time in the 1830s and 40s were in high demand because the UK was going into a time period known as the railway mania. 
L&M or Liverpool and Manchester Railway opened the first modern inner city rail system in 1830 to much success. It also turned into somewhat of a stock bubble of its own. As the success of the railway grew rapidly, people began making more and more investments, which in turn increased the price of its shares, and then it reaches a peak and then it collapses. Parliament had passed 263 acts calling for new railway companies to be formed and nearly 10,000 miles or more than 15,000 kilometers of railroads were set to be built. But they never were as companies were collapsing. They were swallowed up by larger competitors before any railroads were built with those large competitors ultimately collapsing too or the companies turned out to be fraudulent and were never in the rail business to begin with. So Wallace and his brother were able to take advantage of the railway bubble while it lasted. Over the course of the next several years, Wallace learned and mastered numerous trades, including drafting, map making, geometry, trigonometry, construction, architecture, mechanics, and agricultural chemistry. He discovered a love of the outdoors, which made surveying the perfect job for him. It set him on a course in life that would eventually lead him to what he would devote his life to, the study of nature, botany, geology, biology, geography, anthropology, and astronomy. He was an explorer and an illustrator. Instead of being in school or doing whatever it was 19th century teenage boys typically did in the UK if they didn't have to work, he was exploring the land and the countryside while he assisted in deciding where new railway tracks would be laid. While the tracks were being built, he got a glimpse of what was inside the earth, below the surface, what it looked like, and the history and secrets that it held. This not only included what was in and on the earth, but all things above and beyond the earth also. In 1843, the surveying work had slowed, so Wallace applied for a job at the Collegiate School in Leicester, where he would be teaching drafting, surveying, math, and English. Because of the school's extensive libraries, he was also able to do his own studying, as well as meet other budding scientists and naturalists, including a young man named Henry Walter Bates, who was a gifted entomologist, which is the study of insects. And Bates had an impressive and immense compilation of bugs. Wallace was enamored with the art of collecting. A couple years later, he would quit his job in Leicester and went back to surveying as the railway boom was in full swing. But he really didn't care for all the responsibilities of the job itself. But he managed to set aside time to immerse himself in his studies of nature. He also, during this time, kept in touch with Henry Bates, his insect friend, and the two of them read a book written by William H. Edwards entitled A Voyage Up the Amazon River. So the two of them decided to travel to the port city of Belem in the Brazilian state of Para, south of the Amazon River on September 25, 1848. They arrived a little more than a month later on May 28, 1848. Of course, they were inspired by Charles Darwin's travels, which began back in 1831, when he was invited to sail around the world on the HMS Beagle as their dedicated naturalist, where he collected thousands and thousands of specimens of his own from everywhere around the globe. 
While Wallace and Bates started off working together, they eventually split up, though there is no official reason on record as to why, but Kirk Johnson said in his book that if they hadn't parted ways, they'd essentially be collecting the same specimens and only working to be competing with each other's research. Wallace worked mainly in the middle Amazon and Rio Negro areas while Bates explored the rainforests. Bates ended up spending 11 years in South America, becoming one of the world's leading entomologists and naturalists, and is credited with significant contributions to the earliest developments of natural selection. Wallace would end up exploring the Rio Negro region further than anyone had before him, and drafted a map of the area that would be used as the standard for decades to come. He also began amassing collections of his own. But by early 1852, Wallace, who was only 29 years old by then, found himself to be in poor health and could no longer continue his explorations in South America. So he began heading back to where he came from along the river. He reached town on July 2, 1852, at which point he found out that his younger brother, Herbert, who had joined him in South America in 1849, had died of yellow fever. He also found out that most of the specimens that he had collected over the past several years and that had been sent down the Amazon River were being held up at a Rio Negro dock because of a miscommunication, so he would have to figure out another way to get his collections through. Which he did, and soon he was on his way sailing back to England. Sadly, the ship that he was sailing on caught fire and sank, taking everything that Wallace had with him, everything that he had collected, along with 34 live animals that he took with him from South America, including monkeys, parrots, toucans, and parakeets. He, along with some other survivors, somehow managed to make it onto some leaky lifeboats that were on the verge of sinking constantly, which caused them to have to keep bailing water out nonstop. And this went on until they were spotted by a passing cargo ship and picked up. It took Wallace 80 days to sail from Brazil to England. He finally set foot on his homeland on October 1st, 1852. Everything that Alfred Wallace had collected during the years that he was in South America was lost. Thousands upon thousands of bird specimens, eggs, fish, plants, insects. In a letter that he wrote while in the lifeboat, which still is in existence, said, My collections, however, were in the hold and were irrevocably lost, and now I begin to think that almost all the reward of my four years of privation and danger were lost. What I had hitherto sent home had little more than paid my expenses, and what I had in the Helen I calculated would realize near 500 pounds. But even all this might have gone with little regret, had not the far richest part of my own private collection gone also. My private collection of insects and birds, since I left Para, was with me, and contained hundreds of new and beautiful species, which would have rendered, I had fondly hoped, my cabinet, as far regards American species, one of the finest in Europe. Wallace did have an insurance policy that he had taken out on his cargo and that would have covered his specimens that were lost, but there was no way to ascribe a price to the science and what would have been learned from his collections. There was no way he would have the resources or even the physical ability anymore to repeat this journey. 
Unlike Darwin and other explorers of the time, the ones who came from royal societies, they had unlimited funds to travel whenever and wherever they pleased. But Wallace was determined to make sure that he would leave his mark on the world of natural history, and he couldn't waste any more time. He would eventually travel and explore the regions of Indonesia and Malaysia over the course of eight years from 1854 to 1862. He gathered more than 125,000 specimens, including 310 mammals, 100 reptiles, 7,500 shells, 13,100 moths and butterflies, 83,200 beetles, and 13,400 other insects. His most prized collection were the 8,050 birds that he captured, skinned, and preserved, which were stored at the Natural History Museum in London. When he would collect them, he would send regular shipments back to a colleague of his in the UK, who would in turn sell them for him, many of them to that Natural History Museum. Wallace's legacy and achievements are usually overlooked because of Charles Darwin, but not in the world of those who study and appreciate natural history. Both Wallace's and Darwin's extensive collections of specimens were kept at the museum in London. The Natural History Museum purchased many of Wallace's specimens over the years that he was in Indonesia and Malaysia, but he did sell them to other collectors. Those would mostly eventually end up in the museum as well. And Wallace's own personal collection of more than 2,500 species of birds was sold to the museum in 1873. Wallace is credited with making the most significant contribution to ornithology ever. In an interesting aside, Wallace took on issues that continue to be challenged today, including flat earthers and vaccinations. In 1870, a flat earther named John Hamden placed an ad in a magazine betting 500 pounds to anyone who would be able to prove that a body of water had a convex curvature, which would be the case if the world was round, right? So Wallace, who was a little bit broke at the time, set up an experiment where he placed two objects at the same height above water, six miles or 10 kilometers apart. But when he mounted a telescope on a bridge at the same height above the water as the objects and then viewed them through the telescope, one object appeared to be higher out of the water than the other, demonstrating that there was a curvature of the earth. The person judging this bet declared that Wallace had won, but the flat earther refused to accept the loss. So he sued Wallace and launched a years-long smear campaign against him, calling him a fraudster and a thief. But Wallace ended up suing him, winning numerous libel suits, but it ended up costing him more money than the bet was originally worth, as well as a whole bunch of frustration. And then when it comes to vaccines, which I thought was kind of interesting and still relevant today, Wallace had found himself debating the effectiveness of the then-mandatory smallpox vaccine, which incidentally ended in 1972 in the United States when smallpox was completely eradicated. Wallace believed that getting a vaccine should have been a matter of personal liberty rather than mandatory. He questioned the effectiveness of the vaccine. Germ diseases were a new thing and not yet universally accepted, 
and there was very little knowledge of our immune systems at the time, so it was difficult to understand how the vaccine worked. He challenged those who supported mandatory vaccines and found that they were using questionable, sometimes flat-out fake statistics to support their side of the debate. He felt doctors had their own agendas when it came to promoting the smallpox vaccine. When Wallace came to believe that the truth of the matter was that the reduction in cases of smallpox could be attributed to improvements in hygiene and sanitation rather than the vaccine. He also felt vaccines would disrupt natural balance and natural order of things if vaccines were not administered properly, which at the time they weren't often given haphazardly in unsanitary conditions, it could be deadly in and of itself. I did, out of curiosity, look further into mandatory smallpox vaccinations. Considering what we're all facing today with the COVID-19 vaccine and people who are choosing to either get it or not get it, I've been vaccinated. My mom refuses to be vaccinated. My husband got the vaccine begrudgingly, and my daughter is procrastinating about it and feels no urgency. So here with my circle of people, we're all over the map, and I do encourage my daughter to try to set aside time to get vaccinated, and I talked to my mom about it because her doctor expressed his concerns to me about her refusal to get vaccinated a couple weeks ago. I told him to just kick her out of his office, but he said that he couldn't do that. And that is about the extent of my involvement when it comes to telling anyone anything about vaccines. So I found this article on NPR that talked about a 1901 smallpox vaccine raid in New York. 250 men showed up at a tenement house in Little Italy with the intentions of forcibly vaccinating everybody on site. A quote in the article said, there were scenes of policemen holding men down in their night robes while vaccinators began working on their arms. Inspectors were going from room to room looking for children with smallpox. When they found them, they were literally tearing babies away from their mother's arms to take them to what were called city pest houses, which is where smallpox victims were kept. They were large isolation hospitals where People who had smallpox were quarantined, but it was also considered to be a place for them to just go and die. There were numerous raids like that in New York City and in Boston. The vaccines were mandatory in schools, factories, and if you worked or traveled on the railways. There was another incident in Middlesbrough, Kentucky, where police and vaccinators arrived in the part of town that was predominantly African-American People were rounded up, handcuffed, held at gunpoint, and vaccinated. Anyone who was infected was forced into quarantine. Of course, this goes against the principles the United States is based on when it comes to civil liberties. So a battle between the government and the anti-vaxxers ensued, leading to a 1902 Supreme Court decision where the court upheld the right of a state to order a vaccination for its citizens during an epidemic in order to protect people from the disease. But the NPR article went on to state, at the same time, the court recognized certain limitations on that power, that this power of health policing was not absolute and was not total, and there was a sphere 
of individual liberty that needed to be recognized. Measures like this needed to be reasonable and someone who could make a legitimate claim that a vaccine posed a particular risk to them because of their family history or medical history could not have to be vaccinated. And beyond that, the Supreme Court in Massachusetts stipulated that the state could not forcibly vaccinate its citizens. Smallpox continued to have isolated outbreaks in the United States until 1949. And like I said, mandatory smallpox vaccines were halted in 1972 since it had been eradicated. This article wasn't written because of the current pandemic, but rather back in 2011, years after a debate was sparked by an article published in a 1998 British medical journal suggesting that there was a link between the MMR vaccine and autism. But the article was withdrawn in 2011 when the study was found to not only be wrong, but found that key information was altered in order to support the idea that there was a link between the MMR vaccine and autism. Now, I'm not going to debate this. I'm just discussing the debate. And even though the original study was debunked, there is a large community of people who do believe that there is indeed a link between the vaccine and autism. That is way off topic, dreamers, but still somewhat relevant to what all of us are faced with here today in 2021. I found it interesting how things went down a century ago, a little more than a century ago. And I wanted all of you listening in case you didn't know that much about Alfred Wallace to have an understanding of the impact that he had on natural history and, of course, the case we are discussing in this episode today. One of the most valuable specimens that Wallace ever collected and sold to the Natural History Museum were feathers from the bird of paradise. In an interview with National Geographic, Kirk Johnson said, Wallace is kind of famous for being not famous. I wanted to give a sense of the extreme links that he had gone to to gather these things. He was also obsessed for completely different reasons. He wanted to find and collect these things in the service of human knowledge and future research. 150 years earlier, Wallace described the specimens that he had collected as individual letters in the volume of the Earth's deep history. And if we allow these things to disappear, we are essentially binding ourselves to these records of the past. That is what led Wallace to implore the British government to fund and preserve these collections for future generations of researchers. He was one of the first Western naturalists to encounter birds of paradise in the wild, such as the king bird of paradise, which he found on remote islands off the coast of New Guinea. It is a bird that is almost impossible to describe with a brilliant red back, a white breast, and these long tail feathers, at the end of which are coiled two coin-shaped iridescent emerald feathers. When Wallace first saw Birds of Paradise, he recognized the paradox of their beauty, which he described as an almost wanton waste of it. He also realized that if people ever found these things, they would surely hunt them to extinction. That's the nut of this whole story. Whether or not we can restrain ourselves from destroying the beautiful things in nature that we've ascribed a value to. Alfred Wallace wanted more than anything to arrive back in London with an actual living bird of paradise. He tried 10 times, 
but each time the bird died within three days. Whenever one was captured and brought to him, he would put the bird in a cage that he constructed out of bamboo. But the bird, which had been flapping frantically in the sack in which it had been delivered, never stopped trying to escape the confines of the cage. Even though its cage was filled with fresh fruit and grasshoppers, boiled rice, and fresh water, the birds fought their confinement. By the second day, the bird nearly completely stopped moving, and by the third day, it was dead. Finally, Wallace had heard that there was a merchant in Singapore that had managed to successfully keep two male birds of paradise alive in a cage. He tracked down the merchant and paid him 100 pounds for the two birds. For the next seven weeks, Wallace kept vigil by the birdcage to ensure that there was nothing that would risk their lives. He brought with him a stockpile of insects and fruits to feed his birds. He made sure that they stayed warm as the weather was cold, and he made sure that they stayed dry from the mist of the ocean. When food for his birds ran low, he would go into the storeroom of the ship and sweep up as many cockroaches as he could find. When he boarded a train with them, he rode with the birds in the baggage compartment. He filled up on supplies for his birds in Malta and then again in Paris. He finally arrived at Folkestone, a British port, on March 31, 1862, with two live birds of paradise. By then, Charles Darwin had published his theory of natural selection, which was actually both of their theories, but Darwin usually gets credited with it alone. But Wallace didn't care. Once he had arrived in England with those birds of paradise, he was instantly embraced by the scientific community for this accomplishment. It was something that only came along once in a generation. Six years later, Wallace published his book, The Malay Archipelago, The Land of the Orangutan and the Bird of Paradise. He dedicated this book to Charles Darwin. In a letter Darwin wrote to Wallace's traveling companion, Henry Bates, he stated, What strikes me most about Mr. Wallace is the absence of jealousy towards me. He must have a really good, honest, and noble disposition, a far higher merit than mere intellect. Hunting for birds of paradise and habitat destruction have caused some species of the birds to be endangered. Deforestation is the biggest threat today. Hunting for birds of paradise stopped in 1920 when exporting them became illegal, but hunting is still allowed, however only for the ceremonies of the native communities on the island of New Guinea. In the 19th and 20th centuries, the use of birds and feathers as fashion accessories was all the rage. The more stuffed birds you had perched on your hat, the more socially elite you were, apparently. The fashion industry nearly decimated the bird population around the world, but I will talk more about that a little bit later on. Conservation efforts began at the turn of the 20th century, with new laws being enacted and wildlife preserves being established in the United States in an effort to protect bird populations from extinction. Today, there is one bird of paradise named after Wallace. It is the Semioptera wallisi, or Wallace's standard wing. Alfred Wallace was the one who insisted to museum curators that he was sending his specimens to that they needed to collect and keep as many finds in nature as they possibly could. 
because these things will be there when the time comes when people begin wondering and asking questions that no one yet knew to ask. These are the irreplaceable specimens from history that will answer those questions. Wallace's collections were originally kept and stored at the British Museum that was located in London at the time. And when he passed away, his extensive personal collection at his home was added. I want to read you a passage written by Kirk Johnson because I want you listening to have an understanding just how important every single thing Wallace collected was, and he did so with such painstaking care and detail. Deep within the stone and terracotta tomb of the museum, the curatorial staff unpacked and arranged Wallace's birds neatly in storage cabinets alongside Darwin's finches. Here was a male king bird of paradise from the Aru Islands captured outside the village of Wanambai in February 1857, just north of the river Watalai at 5 degrees south, 134 degrees east, at 138 feet above sea level. Just like there could never be another Alfred Wallace, there could never be another specimen bearing such biological data. The curators protecting these specimens would train their apprentices before retiring, just as their replacements would mentor the next generation. Undoubtedly, the museum curators knew the significance and importance of the vast catalog of specimens being kept under the museum and would go to great lengths to ensure that everything is kept guarded. But just two years after Wallace passed away on November 7, 1913, at the age of 90, World War I began. London was attacked and bombed by zeppelins surreptitiously floating in the sky from Germany. When World War II began, Germany once again attacked London from the sky, having sent their air force, who launched an unrelenting attack blitz. Planes dropped bombs across London for 57 nights in a row, hitting the museum itself alone 28 times, causing extensive damage. The curators decided that they needed to quietly get everything in the museum out of London. Under the cover of night, trucks filled with the contents of the museum were taken to numerous homes of the wealthiest people and families living in the countryside for safekeeping. And one of those places chosen to store some of the specimens was a museum in Treng that had been built by Lord Lionel Walter Rothschild, the heir to a wealthy British banker and politician. Kirk Johnson described him as one of the most tragically obsessive bird collectors that had ever lived. I was curious as to what was meant by that, and some of you may also be wondering that as well. So I will quickly go over how we became involved in this. I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but it does provide a framework for the case that we are covering in this particular episode, and it will help put what eventually happened in 2009 into context. Walter Rothschild was born into one of the wealthiest families in the UK, as his great-grandfather had the distinction of being the founding father of the modern banking system. And while Walter's dad was constantly moving and shaking, making deals and investments all over the place, rubbing elbows with royalty and other members of society's elite, 
Walter himself indulged in his fascination with dead animals. When he was a child living in Tring, he had a governess, a term that doesn't get used all that much anymore, but it is what mostly pre-World War I Europeans would refer to as a private tutor for their children. They're different from a nanny because they strictly work on training and teaching children. They do not take care of the children's physical needs, such as feeding, bathing, stuff that a nanny would do. So when Walter was about seven years old, he was out on a walk with his governess when he found a taxidermy workshop belonging to one of his neighbors. He was mesmerized by all of the animals inside the workshop, and he went home and told his mom and dad that he was going to build a museum. Walter was a child that did not cope well in social situations. He had difficulty relating to children his own age. He was slightly overweight and he struggled with a speech impediment. That coupled with the fact that his mom kept him sheltered most of the time out of the fear that he would get sick or catch a disease. So he spent his time collecting, slowly amassing thousands of birds, insects, and eggs. Eventually, his father sent him off to study at the University of Cambridge, hoping that the whole dead animal thing was just a phase so he could prepare his son to join him in the world of finance and banking. But Walter did not do well at the university, and he ended up dropping out after two years. And soon, his dad realized that Walter's infatuation with birds and bugs had only deepened. So dad gave up. And for his son's 21st birthday, dad built Walter his own museum to keep his specimens in on the family property in Tring. It was named the Walter Rothschild Zoological Museum. And within two years, it was open to visitors and tourists. And it attracted tens of thousands of people from all over the country, which was unheard of at the time for any small town. According to Kirk Johnson, inside the museum, Walter had stuffed rhinoceroses, polar bears, penguins, elephants, crocodiles, sharks, and birds of paradise. Outside, he had a collection of living animals, deer, kangaroos, emus, tortoises, as well as some zebra-pony hybrids he called zebroids. This is one of the places that museum curators from London were able to hide some of the collections that they were protecting from the German invasion and attack. And this is where Wallace's and Darwin's collections are today. The priceless, irreplaceable collections that survived two world wars and Adolf Hitler were there and safe. But would they survive a 20-year-old flautist? with a distinctly specific obsession? That remains to be seen. I did say a moment ago that Walter Rothschild was one of the most tragically obsessed bird collectors that ever lived. Because I don't want to go too far off topic here, I will tell you more about Walter Rothschild after we sign off at the end of this episode. You can just continue listening past the outro to hear more about his life. So, I talked about feathers and fashion a little while ago. How millions and millions of birds were killed, 
towards the end of the 19th century, well into the 20th, until conservation efforts kicked in as bird populations were dwindling, species were becoming endangered and possibly extinct. Dead birds were the Louboutins of the time. The more high status, high society the woman, the more exotic the bird. They were all the craze. In fact, if you Google Vogue's 1892 inaugural cover, you will see a drawing of a woman surrounded by birds and butterflies. Every Victorian era woman wanted a hat for every occasion imaginable and a bird or feather stuck to every hat. The numbers of birds being sacrificed in the name of high fashion was staggering. Across a span of four years, more than 155,000 birds of paradise were sold in London auction houses, amounting to, in today's dollars, a $2.8 billion industry. 40 million pounds of plumage had been imported into England. That's 18 million kilograms. And the plumage, it's the entire collection of feathers as they come naturally patterned on a bird. That's what plumage is. The same thing was going on all over the United States with more than 200 million birds across North America being killed for fashion. Feathers sold in bulk were worth tens of thousands of dollars. In fact, aside from diamonds, the most valuable cargo lost on the RMS Titanic was 40 crates of feathers that sank with the ship. By the end of the 19th century, conservationists took aim at the decimation and torture of animals to be used for our amusement, and suffragists who implored women to develop themselves as women intellectually instead of being overly concerned with who has the fanciest horse riding hat on their block. That true beauty comes from within, not whatever is stuck to your clothing. Laws began being passed, and in the United States, the first federal bird sanctuary was established by President Theodore Roosevelt in 1903, the first of 55 reserves that he would establish during his presidency. Of course, the feather industry fought back against conservationists, but eventually lost. Global feather trade has come to a halt in the United States when it banned the importation of feathers and tightened laws regulating the hunting of North American birds. Eventually, the gaudy bird hats that had been all the rage became pretty inconvenient when people started having cars and their hats just wouldn't fit. Or if they would go to the movies, which was becoming more and more of a thing, and their hats were too big and rude to be worn at all, the impracticality of it, along with the conservation efforts, helped put an end to bird fashion. Out of this would evolve a whole new line of work, which was wildlife smuggling. But that's another story for another day and another show. Like I said a few minutes ago, I know this story is sounding a little bit like it's meandering, but I think it's important in obscure cases like this that we have a really clear context around it. Because on the surface, the crime itself doesn't really mean all that much until we know what was going on in the world in the century and a half leading up to what would take place on June 24th, 2009. So I promise it will all tie in. And if and when I reference any of this stuff later on, you could be like, oh yeah, Roseanne mentioned that interesting assortment of facts in the beginning of this story. So before we get to the heart and soul of the matter, 
there's another thing that we need to familiarize ourselves with, and that would be the art of lie tying. I actually found the entire aspect of this case oddly fascinating, and for some of you, it might be quite boring, especially if you're not into fishing, maybe, maybe not. I don't particularly care for fishing, but my mom, when I was young, she loved to go fishing. I felt like we went all the time, and I don't like fish. I don't eat seafood. I don't like the smell of fish out there on the pier or at the local supermarket. If it came from the ocean, I won't eat it. The kind of fishing my mom did was usually from the end of a pier, using bait from a bait shop. She doesn't use flies. They're meant to mimic bugs, you know, from a hook with feathers tied to those hooks in somewhat of an ornate fashion and are most often used to catch trout or salmon because they float at the top of the water. Trout and salmon are fish that look similar. They apparently taste similar. I wouldn't know. The main difference is that trout is found in freshwater, salmon is found in saltwater. Another difference is the kind of artificial flies that are used to catch each of these fish. Trout flies are typically made with brown feathers, brown colored fur and items like that. Not too much color needed. While salmon flies use a much more colorful, exotic assortment of feathers and items used to make the artificial fly. The hobby of making these things is called fly tying and it is comprised of a massively dedicated, enthusiastic and protective group of individuals who immerse themselves in the art of fly tying. According to an article on Britannica.com, there are as many as 250,000 who have made a hobby out of this and the manner in which flies are made are quite specific. The feathers that are used, the colors and the patterns, the way it is assembled and the items that are used is called a recipe. When it comes to the difference between trout flies and salmon flies, Kurt Johnson himself noted, trout flies require materials that are drab, common and cheap. Elk hair, rabbit fur, wool and chicken feathers. A salmon fly, by vivid contrast, is made to not resemble anything in nature, but rather to provoke. The fish being stalked are returning from the ocean to their natal rivers to spawn eggs and gravel beds known as reds. During these annual journeys known as salmon runs, the fish stop feeding, but they protect their reds from intruders by biting with canine teeth and hooked lower jaws. Salmon don't lunge at an angler's fly because it resembles an insect. They attack it because it's a foreign object in the place where they just buried their eggs. The fanciness of the salmon fly really doesn't make a difference to the salmon themselves. They don't care what a fly looks like or what color it is or what types of feathers are used in making it. That's 100% a human thing. Salmon anglers are the ones who make a whole big whoop-de-doo about it. It was the aristocratic angler that made it fancy. Even though you could take some of your cat's fur, tie it to a hook, and catch a salmon, they had already become immersed in the craft of tying the most beautiful and exotic flies in the world. And from all of Kirk Johnson's travels, the way that he describes the fly tires he's encountered is that their hobby can rise to the levels of a cult-like obsession with it. In fact, he is convinced that because of all the money and the painstaking time that goes into creating 
the most authentic traditional flies that there is no way that these people are going to toss them into the rivers to be eaten by fish. When it comes to the British folk, as the building of the railways made faraway rivers more accessible, people from all walks of life began showing up to go fishing. The working class people that the wealthy landowners didn't want coming around and going fishing around where they lived decided that the rivers were theirs. So these British lords began building fences around their land after a series of laws were passed allowing them to make rivers private. Suddenly, all the spots where anglers used to be able to go fishing were no longer available to them, and these landlords began charging people to go fishing on their land. By the end of the 1800s, Almost every available place to go fishing was owned and operated by either a landowner or a fishing club. Salmon fishing became an activity exclusive to the wealthy and to the elite. So what ended up happening is these wealthy fisher people began assigning traditions to fly fishing. The various fishing clubs and the private landlords began to design their very own unique kind of fly. They developed their own unique recipes and patterns to make flies that would be specifically associated with their private section of water. And the art of fly tying began to take on a life of its own as these fly tires worked to make their flies fancier than everybody else's. They began acquiring the feathers and plumes of the most exotic birds in the world that often came with a hefty price. Even though the salmon could care less about the cost and the appearance of a fly, and it had absolutely zero impact on the chances of catching any fish, the competitiveness of fly tying reached a near hysterical mania across the UK. Bird plumes were already flooding into British ports trying to keep up with women's fashion trends, but now their husbands wanted to achieve that same level of social status with their fishing flies that their wives had once craved for their bird hats. So, in 1842... William Blacker published a book entitled The Art of Fly Making, in which he outlined step-by-step instructions for making flies, what materials to use, and which rivers those flies would work best in, supposedly. In his instructions, he said the fly tire must have 37 different kinds of birds in order for their flies to be perfect. What if you were a peasant and couldn't afford exotic bird plumes? Well, his book then gave you instructions on how to dye ordinary feathers from average birds, but reminded them that it can never be as good as the real thing. During the Victorian era, salmon fly tying was all the rage, and the patterns and recipes for making the flies became more and more important, and people themselves became more and more snobby about the whole thing. If you weren't using the best, most rare and expensive feathers and materials, then you were an amateur. Getting their hands on the most difficult feathers to find was the ultimate goal. One of the most notable aristocrats of the time who developed a passion for fly tying that really set him apart from everyone else of his time was a man named George Mortimer Kelson. He published a book in 1895 called The Salmon Fly. He even attempted to study salmon and the way that they saw things, so he spent a great deal of time underwater looking at flies, 
but his experiments often failed because he would stir up all the dirt at the bottom of the riverbeds, making it impossible to see clearly. He spent so much time underwater that he even began to lose his hearing. Kelson insisted, though, that salmon fly tying was an art form, a fine art that required harmony and balance when considering the colors of a fly, even though he knew salmon are just as likely to go for drab, colorless flies as they were for the most expensive ones in the world. He wrote in his book, We have here a well-bred hobby, noteworthy of the attention of the greatest amongst us who are fishers, whether divines or statesmen, doctors, lawyers, poets, painters, or philosophers. His book included recipes for hundreds of different salmon flies with the specific materials required for each of them along with diagrams. Kelson had become so popular that he actually became a brand. In fact, you can find in Burberry's line of coats a Kelson double-breasted jacket on NeimanMarcus.com. It's sold out right now, but it retails for around $1,400. The interest in fly tying sort of fell to the wayside for a little while, for a good part of the 20th century, though there was always still a dedicated community. It just wasn't as big of a deal as it had been. But it would see a resurgence in the 90s, due largely in part to a man named Paul Schmuckler. Sports Illustrated ran an article about his salmon flies, and I'll post some pictures of them when this episode goes live. He will use as many as 150 different materials in a single fly recipe, and he insisted that he used nothing from endangered animals, and if they were, then those items were acquired before the Endangered Species Act, and he uses nothing in his materials that is illegal. His popularity and the renewed interest in fly tying came about right before the internet exploded onto the scene. But once the internet did come around, the fly tying community was seeing an influx of new tires, but most of them didn't even fish. They didn't even know how to fish. To them, it was art to be created, to be put on display, and to be shown off. However, it was to never be tossed into a river. Unfortunately for this new generation of fly tires, they simply weren't going to have access to the same materials their predecessors had access to in the 19th century. Most of the birds in traditional recipes are listed as endangered and illegal to import and traffic. They are protected, so this form of art if carried out in its traditional ways, was no longer legal and very difficult to achieve, especially when it came to authenticity. When eBay came around, there was a brief period of time where people were cleaning out their attics and their great-grandma's closets, finding clothing and hats with exotic feathers and birds that they had put up for auction online. But eventually that way of obtaining birds and feathers ran thin also. And as feathers became more and more rare, the price of them steadily rose. So if you were new to the world of fly tying, it was unlikely that they would ever rise to the levels of those who came before them. The fly tires who had once had access to the best, most exotic and beautiful birds in the world 
as well as the very few left today that still had a hold of some rare bird plumes and skins. They were simply never going to be able to create flies as beautiful and authentic as those. And if the new generation even wanted to see any of these birds up close in person, the only chance that they would have is if they went to a natural history museum and looked at the birds that they had on display. So now I'm going to tell you about the Rist family. That's spelled R-I-S-T. The Rist family moved from Manhattan to Claverack, New York in 1998. Claverack is a small town about two hours north of New York City with a population of about 6,000. The town has the distinction of being the location of the very first piece of an extinct animal ever discovered in the United States, and that was the tooth of a mastodon, an animal that kind of resembles a woolly mammoth. It's a world away from Manhattan. It has hills and fields and a creek for fishing. It's an outdoorsy sort of place, but the wrist children, Edwin and his younger brother Anton, they were not the outdoorsy types. Their parents, Lynn and Curtis Rist, who are both graduates from Ivy League institutions, were also both writers and teachers. Mom taught history. Dad taught math. Edwin and Anton were homeschooled, so there was even less venturing out when it came to leaving the home. So Edwin did stay inside a lot. He focused most of his time on his studies and playing his flute. Watching TV was rare, as most of their leisure time was spent studying and reading, and that went for everybody, both parents and kids. Edwin Rist was bright. When it came to playing the flute, he's been described as a prodigy. He learned foreign languages with ease and had an interest in animals. When his parents realized his affinity for snakes in particular at one point in time, they hired him his own private biology tutor whose day job was a dedicated reptile and amphibian expert at New York City's American Museum of Natural History. When the family traveled, they made it a point to visit museums and aquariums. Whenever Edwin or his brother expressed an interest in anything, their parents went all out to facilitate their interests and learning. When Edwin was six, an instructor had told his parents that he had a natural talent for playing the recorder, so they immediately got him private lessons. But soon he began gravitating away from the recorder, opting to play the flute instead, an instrument similar to the recorder. His brother also took up music lessons, choosing to learn to play the clarinet. The competitiveness between the brothers only caused them to become better at their own instrument. Edwin would eventually enroll in a master class taught by a flautist with the Philharmonic. So Edwin was basically chugging along on his way to accomplishing whatever great things he decided he wanted to set out to do. But all of that changed on a summer day in 1999 when Edwin, who was 11 at the time, came into the living room during one of those rare moments that the TV was on, and he noticed a show featuring a hobby that captured his full attention. Within minutes, Edwin Rist was hooked. Pun intended. Edwin's dad, remember, he's the math instructor. 
He was working on a lesson that he was going to give on the physics of fly fishing. So he purchased a video entitled The Orvis Fly Fishing School. Edwin watched as the person on the video took a feather from a rooster and when he attached it and tied it around a hook, the barbs of the feather shot out in all directions. When it floats on the surface of the water, they are meant to look like the legs and antenna of an insect. There was something about the way that feather flared and fanned out that was hypnotic to Edwin. The video was on a VHS tape, so he took the remote control for the VCR and watched this portion of the video with the rooster feather over and over again. There was something about the way that feather changed from a regular flat feather into this little burst of color on the end of a hook that just grabbed him. And true to the way Edwin had always been in his young life, he was ready to go all in with making his very own flies right then and there. He searched the entire house for anything that he could find. He found some fishing hooks, some thread, some pipe cleaners, and he plucked feathers from his mom's pillows in her bedroom. He sat down at his desk and tried making his very first fly. Edwin did this for the next several weeks, using anything that he could find in the house that might work. But there really wasn't going to be a way for him to mimic what he saw on the video exactly. But he kept trying. He would tie a fly, undo it, and tie it again. Edwin's dad saw that his son was practicing fly tying with household items for several weeks by then, so he decided to take his son to a nearby fishing store so they could get some proper materials. A place about a half hour away called Don's Tackle Service. Dad purchased all the items that Edwin would need to properly begin his new hobby of fly tying. He got him a bag of feathers, some fishing hooks, thread, a tool called a bobbin, which is used to wind the thread around the hook and feathers, as well as a vise to hold the hook while he's working on it. Using the video that his dad had, as well as a magazine called Fly Tire that he got a subscription for, remember the internet was at its infancy at this point. Not everybody had it yet. This was the end of the 90s. So he used what he could and Edwin practiced whenever he had any free time, following the instructions on the video and in the magazine articles that he found. His little brother Anton was soon interested and picked up the hobby too. In 2000, their parents enrolled them in some fly tying tutorial courses, and from there, the world of fly tying was opened up to the both of them. They met others who shared a vested interest in the hobby, and they discovered all the different types of feathers that are used, as well as several different ways of tying flies and different styles and recipes. Soon, Edwin had amassed a collection of flies that he tied, yet he had no idea how to fly fish. He didn't even own a rod of his own. There was something about the challenge and replication of fly tying that just kept pulling him in, that he just wanted to keep getting better and better at it. Their instructor, their fly tying tutor, was a professor of evolutionary biology with a passion for fly fishing. He noticed how talented both Edwin and Anton were at the craft, so he suggested that they might be interested in trying out their skills in some fly tying competitions, which is a thing that takes place at annual fly tying conventions at cities all over the United States and Europe. 
The next closest convention was going to be held in Danbury, Connecticut, so mom and dad packed up the car and took their kids. At this convention, Edwin won a competition where he tied 68 flies in one hour. They also attended a convention in Wilmington, Massachusetts, where the boys entered a competition to replicate a specific fly that they were assigned. They both won first place in their categories. When Edwin and his brother were looking at all of the displays of the various vendors and dealers at that convention, it was at one of these booths where Edwin noticed a display of Victorian salmon flies that were made according to the 19th century instructions in the book written by George Kelson that I talked about earlier. These flies weren't like anything Edwin and Anton had seen up to that point. The colors and the feathers were brilliant and unique, as if they didn't even come from any animal anywhere on earth. Some were tiny, some were huge. Some had as many as four hooks attached to one fly. You see, Edwin had been tying trout flies. And as I told you earlier, trout flies require very little in the way of colorful, exotic feathers. These were different. And these were salmon flies. And they were made from the brightest colored feathers from the rarest birds in the world. The man who made these salmon ties that the boys were admiring was a gentleman by the name of Edward Musrol. Muzzy was his nickname. Edwin's interest in trout fly tying all but vanished in the moments after meeting Muzzy and his colorful collection of salmon flies. Even when their first place victories were announced by the judges at the convention, they could barely be bothered with it. Trout fly tying was out. It was all about salmon flies from that moment on. Edwin wanted to take lessons from Muzzy, but he lived all the way in Sydney, Maine, 330 miles or 530 kilometers away from their home in Claverack. But by lucky happenstance, Edwin and Anton had both recently been accepted into the New England Music Camp for Gifted Musicians, which just so happened to be in the town of Sydney, Maine as well. On the day Edwin and Anton were taken by their dad to Muzzy's for their first salmon fly tying lesson, they were given a tour of his shop before they sat down at a table that he had set up for them to work at. On the table was Kelson's book open to a page that had the recipe for the Durham Ranger, a fly from 1840 created in Durham, England. According to Kirk Johnson's book, the feathers for this fly would have had to come from a Chinese golden pheasant, the South American red-ruffed fruit crow, filaments from a South African ostrich, and plumes of the Central American blue chatterer. But Muzzy had substitute feathers for the boys. Some dyed turkey feathers, others from more common birds. Muzzy spoke to the boys of working with real feathers being akin to working with magic, that the substitute feathers were hardly the same, that they could never measure up to the real thing, and he really drilled it into them. There was nothing like having real feathers, the rarest, most exotic, most colorful and beautiful feathers in existence. The lessons continued into a second day when they worked on a recipe called the Baron. Feathers for this one came from ostriches, peacocks, Indian crows, blue chatterers, swans, ducks, jays, macaws, jungle fowl, and golden pheasants. But getting these feathers were not going to be as simple as it was back in the 19th century. 
The Migratory Bird Act of 1918 made it against the law to purchase bird feathers, even from the most common of birds. In fact, according to Kirk Johnson, if a bird even dropped dead on its own and landed on the ground next to Edwin and Anton, it would have been technically illegal for either one of them to pick that bird up. After two days of lessons, Muzzy gave Edwin a gift. Two small Ziploc bags that contained feathers from an Indian crow and a blue chatterer, worth about $250. Both he and Anton would be able to make one fly with those feathers, but Muzzy told them to make sure that they were confident in their salmon fly tying before using those feathers. The boys went home and turned their garage into their own fly tying workshop. The two of them spent countless hours working over their vices, teaching themselves how to use substitute materials to mimic Victorian salmon flies. Across time, Edwin even began inventing his own recipes. In 2002, when Edwin was 13 years old, he was accepted early into Columbia Green Community College. His major would be fine arts. Fly tying, however, remained a constant pursuit of Edwin's, but he knew he was reaching a point where he would only be able to go so far with this passion due to the fact that he had no access to the real feathers that the classic Victorian recipes called for. Even though he would be able to make a fly that looked exactly like any one of the Victorian flies in Kelson's book, he knew in his heart of hearts that it wasn't authentic and it truly bothered him very deeply. It didn't matter how identical his flies looked to the originals, it just wasn't the same to him because he knew that they were fakes. But soon, the internet came along, and Edwin discovered a community of fly tires who were just as consumed with the art of salmon flies as he was. And many of them shared that same feeling, the longing for the one thing that they were all missing, authentic feathers. Many of these fly tying enthusiasts would describe themselves as having been able to experience using real feathers once, maybe twice in their lives, that they became so transfixed with it, and it would relentlessly haunt them as they tried in vain to replicate that experience. Having real feathers takes you to another level, because when you have in your hands the rarest feathers in the world, you know that you have no choice but to be at your very best because of the significance, the importance, and the power of what you have in that feather. You have to be the best, and anything less is not an option. Okay, dreamers, I will go ahead and pause here and end part one. When we come back with part two, we will go through the timeline of Edwin's immersion into this hobby of salmon fly tying and where it takes him across time and ultimately what takes him to London and eventually to the small town of Tring. Don't forget to look up California Dreaming on Facebook, like the page, leave a review and join the discussion group. Follow us on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. If you have a dollar or two to spare, you can help support the production of the show through Patreon. 
Just go to patreon.com and search for California Dreaming. Feel free to reach out and message me with Kate's suggestions or any questions or comments about this episode. The email is californiapod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. And don't forget to keep on listening past this outro for more information about the founder of the Natural History Museum in Tring. His name was Walter Rothschild. I have a little bit more to tell you about him if you care to listen. I'm your host, Roseanne. And until next time, sweet dreams. Okay, so in the main part of this episode, I mentioned Walter Rothschild. It was his father, who was a British banker and politician, who wanted his son to follow in his footsteps, but realized that he was never going to get over his obsession with animals. So he built his son his own museum in the city or the town of Tring. So he had a place to keep all the dead animals that he was collecting and preserving through taxidermy. I also said that Walter was described as one of the most tragically obsessed bird collectors that ever lived. I wanted to know more about what that actually meant, but I didn't want to get more off topic than I was already getting. I mean, I know it seems like this whole episode was off topic, but I hope you believe me when I tell you that it will all make sense in the end. So what does it mean to be the most tragically obsessed bird collector ever? I found an article on the owl Dot com that's the awl.com from April of 2016 written by Jacob Mikanowski so Walter Rothschild was the heir to one of the biggest family banking fortunes ever but he also amassed one of the biggest private zoological collections with a particular obsession with cassowaries which is a cousin to the emu he kept them on the family property He bred them. He had every species and subspecies of the flightless bird. But he also kept them preserved after they died. He even identified a new species of cassowary. He wrote a book about them. There was just something about the beauty of this particular bird that he was just enamored with. There would come a time in Walter's life when he ran into financial difficulties, and we'll get more into that a little bit later. And he was willing to give up anything that he had except for his cassowaries. He would eventually be forced to sell his personal collection of more than 300,000 birds that he had spent his entire life amassing, but he was able to keep his 65 cassowaries. Before he passed away in 1837, he did have each of his birds taxidermied and put inside his museum. In the article that I read, it said that the cassowary is a large flightless bird that lives in the tropical rainforests of northern Australia and in the jungles of New Guinea. It's the third tallest and second heaviest bird in the world, with its closest living relative being the emu. Other large flightless birds in its class, such as the thunderbird of Australia and the elephant bird of Madagascar, became extinct shortly after humans arrived in their habitats. The cassowary managed to survive because of their stealth and aggression. The population of cassowaries is somewhere between 10 and 20,000, as it is rare for anyone to actually see one in person. Mammologist Tim Flannery spent 13 years in some of the most remote sections of New Guinea, 
and he was never able to see one himself. He saw fresh footprints, fresh droppings, but he was never able to lay his eyes on a cassowary. They somehow managed to sidestep almost everyone's efforts to spot them, which is why they've survived extinction. From the time that Walter Rothschild was born, he was considered their golden boy. He was their eldest, so he would be their heir apparent to the family's fortune. In England at the time, his family was considered a dynasty. As he grew, he remained withdrawn and shy. He also struggled with a stutter described as debilitating. He was kind of a sickly, weak child, but when he grew into his adult size, he was awkwardly tall and large, about six foot three and 300 pounds or 1.9 meters tall, weighing 136 kilograms. One of his odd habits was sleeping in his hammock without any clothes on. Most of the time he was quiet, but he would have some infrequent but intense bursts of anger and rage, and his biggest fear in life was making his mom mad. It was early on, by the age of five in fact, when Walter had developed his affinity for animals. He was able to tell the difference between rare species of butterflies. By the time he turned 20, he was completely obsessed. He had acquired zebras, horses, hogs, emus, rias, which is another flightless bird distantly related to the ostrich and emu, kangaroos, cranes, storks, dingoes, pangolins, which are sometimes referred to as scaly anteaters. They sort of look like reptiles, but they're mammals. Capybaras, which is a South American rodent, and a spiny anteater. He also crossbred zebras with ponies, and he had albinos of various species. He did attend Cambridge University, but he did not do well. He was then made to work for the family banking business, and he didn't do well there either, but ended up sitting behind a desk, quote-unquote working, for the bank for nearly 20 years, and it is questionable as to whether or not he ever did any actual work, which is why I said, quote-unquote, working. His father, at that point, had decided to go ahead and let him run the museum that they had on the family estate. Before long, it became one of the greatest natural history collections in the world and a leading center of zoological research. Walter had dispatch collectors all over the world searching the ends of the earth for any rare or unknown species of anything, as many as 400 people he had working for him. One of Walter's collectors, a gentleman by the name of C.M. Harris, had journeyed to the Galapagos Islands where he collected some live giant tortoises for Walter, another one of his obsessions, these tortoises. The Galapagos Islands are very close to the Earth's equator in the Pacific Ocean, a little more than 620 miles or 1,000 kilometers off the coast of Ecuador, South America. Harris sailed from the islands up to San Francisco, which was apparently a pretty distressing journey for the tortoises, of course. But Walter demanded that he stay in San Francisco for as long as it took to nurse them back to health so that they would be well enough to make the journey back to London. And we know that sailing around Cape Horn at the southern tip of South America is treacherous. If you've listened to the Donald Crowhurst episode on Patreon, we talked about sailing around the world and how some of the roughest waters on the planet are in the southernmost portions of the ocean. But anyway, Walter would have these tortoises shipped back to London. But you know, 
It's very warm and tropical near the equator, and this is generally the opposite of what the weather is like in England, so they're not going to do very well. So Walter ended up renting some reef space for his tortoise collection in the Seychelles Islands off the eastern coast of Africa in the Indian Ocean, a little bit south of the equator, which came under full British rule in 1810. It's independent now, but the Seychelles are still a member of the Commonwealth of Nations. So this is where Walter would keep his tortoise collection. When it came to Walter's personal life, that was complicated. He had serious relationships with two different women for years, unbeknownst to one another, both of whom who he met at parties hosted by King Edward VII. One of them, Maria Fredensen, was an aspiring actress described as pretty as an Edwardian birthday card, sweet and cuddly as a kitten, simple, adoring, petite. While the other woman, Lizzie Ritchie, was worldly, intellectual, temperamental, vindictive, and a little bit on the crazy side. Which, you know, it makes more sense than some of these guys that we see on TV, like on shows like Maury Povich or Jerry Springer and whatnot. Not that I watch that garbage, right? But maybe even Dr. Phil, because okay, I watch that garbage. These guys that have two different girlfriends who look, talk, and act exactly alike. I mean, what is the point of that? Walter here, not that I'm a fan of his lifestyle choices, but at least he had two completely different women, like night and day. Can at least give him that, okay? He had both of these ladies set up in different apartments in London, but the women eventually found out about one another. Lizzie flew into a rage, and she ended up buying a house right next to Walter's museum in Tring, where she repeatedly tried to confront him and confront his mother about him and his behavior. Marie also became very upset and distraught over the betrayal, and it finally got to a point where Walter couldn't take the drama anymore. He was receiving letters in the mail from both of them constantly, so he began setting them aside in baskets, and each time these baskets would get full, he would lock them up. After two years, He had an entire room in his home filled with letters. Walter's younger brother, Charles, eventually found out about what was going on with him sometime in 1908, though it isn't clear if it was something Walter eventually confided in him about or if his brother discovered the piles and baskets of letters. Charles began sorting through them and discovered that not only were these two mistresses of Walter's had been blackmailing him, there was a third woman also doing the same thing. They had been draining Walter Rothschild financially over the course of 40 years, and they were the reason why Walter ended up having to sell off nearly his entire collection of animals, with the exception of his cassowaries. He had been paying these women off all this time, either with direct payouts to each of them or massive losses through investments in the stock market that Walter made at their demand. They were telling him which stocks to buy and all of them ended up being disastrous investments. Before Walter died in 1937, he did destroy all of the baskets of unread letters except for one of them, and that basket revealed all of the blackmail that these women had been putting him through over the course of those 40 years. The final years of Walter's life were punctuated with tragedy. 
His younger brother, Charles, shot and killed himself at a hotel in Switzerland at the age of 46. The blackmailing caused Walter to sell his entire beloved collection of birds to the American Museum of Natural History in New York in 1931. One of his mistresses, Lizzie, demanded some of the money from the sale of his birds, claiming that she was helping him to save up so he could buy them back someday. Shortly thereafter, Walter became ill. He visited his museum less and less, eventually having to stop altogether. In 1933, he helped the foundation of the British Trust for Ornithology, an organization that studies birds of the British Isles. When Walter passed away in 1937, all of the contents in his museum and the museum itself were willed to the British Museum. The Walter Rothschild Zoological Museum at Tring is now part of the Natural History Museum, which is the place our young flautist, Edwin Rist, would go to visit in 2009.